Well, welcome. Glad that you're here. Glad you've joined us today. If you're in the building or if you're watching online, just glad to have you along. About 10 years ago, our country was riveted on this picture and the story behind it. There it is. Remember that? It was called the Miracle on the Hudson. It's when Captain Sully Sullenberger's plane, just after leaving LaGuardia Airport, took two bird strikes, shutting down both engines. And between the moment he took off and the moment he landed on the Hudson River was five minutes. And who knows what it took to be able to do that. In fact, Jeff Matthews is here. Jeff, join me right here. You've been a part of Crossroads for... About 16 years 16 now. years, and you, you're a pilot. And how long have you done that? Uh, about 35 years. 35 years. We have a picture of you right here. It was taken, what, a couple years ago, maybe? <laughs> Way before the great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've got all of this experience. What does it take for a pilot to be able to do what Captain Sullenberger did that day? Well, it, it takes a lot of uh, training, years of experience. And um, in the professional aviation career, uh, especially in the military, we, we spend a lot of time on discussing, visualizing different emergency situations. And we practice a lot of them, many of them in the simulator, or what I like to call dial a disaster. And um, so I don't know that uh, Captain Solenberg visualized or discussed landing his, or ditching his airplane in the Hudson, but I can guarantee you he, he discussed and visualized landing his airplane in some body water, maybe mm. the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic mm. Ocean, but it is just something we've thought about. The before. word ditching an airplane just like sends shivers up my back. You actually had a similar experience. Well, it was. We were, uh, it was when I was in the military. We were, uh, I was in a uh, C-141, which is a large four-engine uh, airplane cargo. We were going into Brisbane, Australia about dusk. We were on about a two-and-a-half-mile final. And uh, up out of the trees came not hundreds, but thousands of fruit bats. And fruit bats are like the size of crows. Yeah, they're, they're huge. Yeah, they're large. And so it was like someone was throwing uh, baseballs at the airplane. And we, um, we said, the, the runway's right there. We're going to land. And then about that time, uh, our number four motor quit on us, rolled back. So we pushed the other three motors up so we wouldn't get slow, put up our flaps to reduce the drag. And continued on down and then moments later we lost our number two motor uh, we pushed the other two motors up and a uh, little praying and we landed uneventfully and then uneventfully when, <laughs> when it was all said and done they had to replace all four motors and the ray dome was cracked as well so all you had to change out all those motors yeah, yeah all four motors were dangerous. and my hunch is they had to change out some uniforms <laughs> as well you've had some amazing training opportunities Tell us about one of them. Yeah, well, in the military, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to train at, uh, it's called Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training. It's where we train uh, most of the NATO uh, fighter pilots in the world that are belong to NATO. And um, one of the main things, the, the instructor cadre was just extremely um, experienced. And so I learned, the one main thing I learned from him is that when things start to go badly in the cockpit, it's time to uh, stay calm, cool, and collected. Um, and especially don't get on the radio if you're not going to sound cool. Mm, mm. And that's just like Captain Solenberg yeah. did on. Yeah. Um, when I walk onto an aircraft, the door's always open. And I look in that cockpit, 
And I see all of that instrumentation, and I think, that looks so hard. But that's not your experience. You walk in the cockpit, and it's like, this is easy. Yeah. Oh. Well, again, it's just back to training. We spend a, a lot of time, every time we train airplanes or trade airplanes, that's part of it. We have to learn what every knob and dial does in that cockpit so we know what system it's doing and what it's doing. And so we... Um, you know, we just spend a lot of time training and doing that. It's just something that is required of the... What are some of the things that you practice over and over and over and over again? Well, the, the main thing that we train all the time in the simulator, dial a disaster, um, it's on takeoff, and it's losing an engine. It's the most critical part of um, any flight is the takeoff roll. If you lose an engine at the wrong time, you don't have enough time, enough runway to abort. So you have to continue to take it off into the air on one engine. And so that's every time we're in the simulator, we practice that. It's called a B1 cut. Wow. And what do you like about flying? Why have you done this for 35 years? <laughs> well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I love just being up with God and the clouds and all that. But uh, with my, my um, I'm a professional aviator for United now. And it's just getting people uh, to where they want to mm -hmm. get. You know, the, everyone's traveling. I just feel... Uh, strongly about doing that as safely as I can and to get mm -hmm. people so they can connect with each other and get to all those places that they wanted to see family and friends and it's just important. That we we are so glad that you spend all that time. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Well, most of us don't fly airplanes, but we pilot our lives. You know how it is. Every morning you just take off cruise through the day, put on autopilot, land at the end of the day, sleep like a baby, get up and do it the next day all over. Isn't that the way you're easy, right? Isn't that the way your life is? Well, most people I know wouldn't describe their lives as easy or routine. They use words like challenging, stressed, stretched, heavy, difficult, fast-paced, busy, overwhelmed, disappointing, worrisome, tiring. And Jesus said some of the most life-giving words about the ease that life can be in Matthew 11. I'm going to read it. It's printed in your notes if you want to take them out. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is such a wonderful invitation, isn't it? When we come to Jesus and the rest for our souls just floods over us. Our lives get easy. The burdens are immediately lighter. Done deal. Well, if that's the case, then for you and me, why does life seem so heavy at times? Rest elusive. And, I, and the load that I know many people carry seems overwhelming. And there's a little phrase in verse 29, that is the key to the whole thing, and it's this, learn from me. Learn from me. And the reason life can be so incredibly heavy is because we haven't learned. We need an instructor. We need a life coach. And Jesus invites us to live our life connected to him, that's the yoke, and learn from him so that I do have rest for my soul. And life is an adventure it's a reality in which God is at work. He wants me to live my life the way Jesus would live my life if Jesus was me. And the New Testament calls these 
apprentices of Jesus. He calls them disciples. And when I use that word, disciple, sometimes it sounds like this word is all religious and holy, like the Christian Marine Corps. Well, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple, 269 times. It means a student, a learner, a practitioner, an apprentice. Someone, a disciple is someone who has decided to be with another person in order to learn from that person and be capable of doing what that person does. And some professions still use the word apprentice. I looked at some job openings in Fort Collins. Plumbing apprentices, electrical apprentices, HVAC, graphic artists, lawn care apprentices. There was a fly fishing apprentice. Sorry, that job's gone. I took it this week. An apprentice is someone who's committed to learning the trade. They don't plan to stay an apprentice their whole life. They want to they learn the trade so they can master the trade, so they can make the trade look easy. Well, here's the question. Do you consider yourself an apprentice of Jesus? Is he your life coach, your instructor? And that's why the book of Matthew contains so much teaching. Jesus didn't come merely to issue us a ticket to the next life. He didn't come to start some sort of watered-down version of a self-help movement where we just sprinkle in a little Jesus. No, Jesus, when Jesus arrived, he essentially said, y'all have been flying your plane upside down. I want to teach you how to fly your plane right side up. It's not going to come natural. It's going to take a lot of learning. But the world flies upside down, and Jesus says, I've come to teach you a whole new way to fly, and it's the easy way, and Jesus opened it up for everyone. Not everybody wanted it, but he opened it up for everyone. And in Matthew 9, Jesus issues the invitation to a person who most scholars believe wrote the book of Matthew, Matthew himself. And in that culture, if there was ever a person least likely to be on the Jesus team, it was Matthew. Let me read the story. Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The easy way starts with an invitation to follow a person. And imagine Matthew's life. Day after day after day of sitting in this hot little booth, this port of entry. Because it was perched on a territory in northern Palestine in the sticks. Far away from the happening city of Jerusalem. And tax collectors were hated by everyone because Matthew could charge what Rome required, what Matthew required, and what the two thug Roman soldiers behind him required as well. They were extortionists, government-sanctioned extortionists. And because Matthew was a Jew, it was the ultimate betrayal of God and country. Imagine someone standing out on Highway 287, burning flags day after day after day. That was Matthew's job. And suddenly one day, up walks this young rabbi, teacher. He leans over the counter and he looks Matthew in the eye and he doesn't hand him any money. 
He says to Matthew, come, follow me. Matthew's not looking for this. Matthew's not praying for this, but he gets up, walks away from his shift and finds himself at dinner with Jesus with a bunch of his other tax collector cronies. It's like a scene from Godfather. Cigar smoke in the room, a lot of drinking going on. Jesus loved this situation. He loved eating with tax collectors. Maybe that's because tax collectors could afford the best food. And when the religious watchdogs, the Pharisees, challenged this practice, Jesus just throws it right back in his face, their faces. Who do you think needs the most help, he said? The sick or the healthy? And Jesus says that he's the doctor who's come to help the sick. And there are three categories of health. There's the sick who know they're sick. There's the well who know they're well. And there's the sick who think they're well, but they're not. And which category is the most sick of those three? It's the third one, isn't it? The sick who think they're well. And it's true of our lives. I've heard people say this. I don't care how serious the diagnosis is. I just want to know what I have. And Matthew responds immediately to Jesus' invitation because deep down, Matthew knows I'm sick. Matthew had probably listened to Jesus teach. He'd been teaching in the area. Jesus was becoming wildly popular. He'd watched Jesus heal people. He's watched people be set free from, every, from the, a former life. He's watched Jesus forgive people. And Jesus was attracting huge crowds. And he'd seen how people could live with joy and forgiveness and freedom and real relationship. And the location of this story in chapter 9 of Matthew is very significant. Because Matthew put this book together. And he puts this story of his decision to become an apprentice, a follower of Jesus, right in the middle of two full chapters of dozens and dozens of miraculous healings and experiences. A little sidebar here. The only thing that casts doubt on whether or not all these miracles happened is because they were all witnessed by fishermen. Just so you know. (laughs) And when Matthew put together all the stories and teaching of Jesus, he put his story The moment Jesus said to him, come, leave that life, start a new life, is Matthew's way of saying, Jesus delivered me from a dead-end life. In fact, the word that Matthew uses when he got up from the desk is the word arose. And it's the same word he uses at the end of the book when he talks about Jesus who arose from the dead. For Matthew, his decision to follow Jesus was his resurrection moment. And it started with him just saying a simple yes to follow Jesus. Matthew had no idea where this was going to lead, what it was going to mean. He had no vision of writing the transition gospel in the New Testament at this moment. He just knew that what Jesus was offering was far better than the life he was living because deep down inside, he he knew he needed a doctor. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were in the ER with our daughter, all day long. She'd had a lung collapse. It was her fifth one in, in the past eight years. And we were in there all day long. I'm not going to get into the big story, but, uh, but we were in the ER all day long. And ER nurses and ER doctors and resident doctors came in all day long. And, and they were helpful. They were helpful. But there was one doctor that we were waiting to see. 
And the next day, finally, the doctor comes in the room. And this is the doctor that has been managing April's care for the last couple of years. And we were waiting for Dr. Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell. When is Dr. Mitchell going to get here? And finally, when he walks into the room, we all just had this sense of, oh, of calm. Of somebody is on the scene now who knows exactly what to do. Someone has just arrived on the scene who knows all about this illness, this sickness. And all we have to do is follow him. That's what we have to do. When Dr. Mitchell on the scene, the burden is light because Dr. Mitchell knew the way. And it's why Matthew arose to follow Jesus. He had this sense that Jesus could heal his soul's sickness. Matthew's craving for money and status and power. His insecurity and fear that led him to take this job in the first place. That caused him to deny his family heritage and sell out to the Romans. And to experience forgiveness for that. And to be put on a pathway of healing and health. He could be able to hold his head high again. All that fear could drain away. Matthew said, what Jesus is offering, I want some of that. And I think had we been there, we would have loved Jesus. There's often times when I wish, Jesus, would you just, you know, come, come back and lead me the way you led those disciples. We would have liked his company. We would have admired his ability, how he deals with all kinds, the same kinds of people we deal with. People who were upset at him, people who loved him, people who wanted to follow him, people who Jesus said, no, go home, all of those things. We would have loved it. And we never get the sense that Jesus is just somehow powering through life, steamrolling people or white-knuckling people. We never get the sense that when Jesus arrives on the scene, this whole burden of life just kind of falls on his shoulder and he walks around. Oh, it's so hard. This human race is so heavy and I got to do something about all of you that have got problems. That's not how he is. You just get this sense he walks through life with grace and strength and joy. Nothing, oh, he's an emotional being. He cries, he laughs, all of that. But you never get the sense that Jesus is out of control. Jesus lives life the way, honestly, you and I want to live life. Jesus said, I'll teach you how to fly your life right side up. And it's why people today that are consumed with jealousy begin to follow Jesus. And one day they wake up and realize, I'm not jealous anymore. It's why an anorexic young girl follows Jesus, learns from him, gets help, gets healing for what's going on inside. So that one day she can wake up and realize, body image, food, I've moved beyond, I've healed from that. It's why that raging person, all kinds of addictions, who follows Jesus, develops healthy habits through a 12-step celebrate recovery program like we have here and heads into a Friday night, gathers here on a Friday night with other people and friends and says, you know what? God has delivered me from my addiction to those things. It's why so many of us gather in small groups every week and it's why millions and millions of Christ followers can sleep through the night surrounded by all kinds of turbulence in their lives because we know deep in our souls that the one who knows the most about life, Jesus, the doctor of life is in the room 
And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not leaving the room. I will be with you on into the next life. And that kind of confidence and security and peace doesn't happen overnight. People change incredibly slow most of the time. Have you ever said this? I can't believe it's taken me this long to learn this. So how does this transformation happen? Well, one of my main instructors and mentors and teachers in the Christian life for me, his name's Dallas Willard. I've never met him. In fact, he died a couple of years ago. He was a professor at USC, an author, a spiritual guide to thousands of people, mostly through his writing. And he'd learned, he's learned the easy way. For instance, when he was dying of pancreatic cancer a number of years ago, someone asked him, how are you feeling about this? And he responded. You know, he said, I wonder how long it's going to be when I'm there, the other side of death, when I realize I'm there and not here. Because Jesus said, those who follow me will never even taste death. I thought, man, I, I want that perspective. I want to know the Jesus that Dallas Willard knows. That's who I want. And in a number of the books, Dallas talks about this golden triangle. Not because it's gold, but because it's so valuable as gold. And I want to teach it to you. So here's the golden triangle. It involves the Holy Spirit, my life, and a training plan. And here's number one. Access the Holy Spirit. Matthew could physically be with Jesus. We can't. Jesus says, I'm going to send, send my spirit to be right inside all of us. In Romans 8, 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living, where? In you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his spirit who lives in you. The Holy Spirit is the all-powerful, creative, personal spirit that waits for our invitation for him to act in us and on us and through us. And we can always recognize his presence because he moves us toward what Jesus would be and do. And when we inwardly experience the kind of love and peace and joy that Jesus knew, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As many of you know, my dad has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And when we first heard the diagnosis, the doctor said, you have one month, maybe two. Well, that was three months ago. And I had lunch with my dad in Cheyenne on Monday. In fact, his cancer doctor said, you know, your numbers, your cancer markers have all come down. No treatment. And, he, and the doctor said, I have no explanation for this. And my dad said, well, I do. People have been praying for me. And the doctor said, well, tell them not to stop. And we, we don't know where this is all going to lead. We don't. But... The healing power of the Holy Spirit is obviously present in my dad's life. And we're celebrating that. We're thankful for that. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, as far as we know, he still has pancreatic cancer. But God has said to him, I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not finished with you yet. And, you know, my dad is going to die. So are you. We just don't know when. And we have this sense of, when we even heard the news, there were tears, yes. But underneath the tears... There's a calm. There's a sense of, you know what? Jesus said, I'll never leave you. And if I'm with you in this life, 
I'm going to take you into the next life. And there's a sense of peace and calm in our family. There's not, sure, it's sad. But because of the Holy Spirit, we know it's going to be okay. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is at work in us. But there's also external expressions of his spirit. Two ways, gifts of the spirit, the New Testament talks about, and fruit of the spirit. When I see people serving coffee here or greeting or leading worship or praying for healing with such joy and powerful effectiveness, that's the gifts of the spirit being demonstrated. And the fruit of the Spirit is a sure sign of transformed character. When our deepest attitudes and dispositions are those of Jesus, it's because we have learned to let the Spirit foster His life in us. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says this, but what happens when we live God's way, the easy way? He brings gifts into our lives. Much of the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, like things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. When I read these words, when I'm in my study this week, people, people would pop into my mind. Names, I could put a name, I could put dozens of names behind each of these things because you are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in your lives and we see it. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. That's the transformed life, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so it begins there. And here's number, the second angle of that triangle. Accept the events of my ordinary life as the environment where the transformation happens. See, sometimes people have their church life and the rest of their life, and they don't, and they don't meet up. Well, the primary place where we're going to experience God is not here. It's out there. Yes, here is important. It is. We worship and learn and we have some training and teaching, but there are 168 hours in a week and you're going to spend maybe a couple of them here. And we can, so we can, we can accept the circumstances of our everyday lives as the place where God is going to do his best work. Do you see your life as a series of problems to be solved or a reality in which God is at work? Here's something I'm trying to learn. Maybe you do this already. I try to reframe problems as opportunities. Because personally, I have a lot of problems. And as a pastor, I get exposed to a lot of problems. You bring your problems to us. We have church problems. We have community problems, country problems. We have all these problems. And the brother of Jesus who learned this from Jesus himself said this about problems. In James 1, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. What James is saying is, life is going to be dial a disaster, right? It's going to happen. And then he says, let it do its work so you will become what? Mature. And well-developed, not deficient in any way. And if you don't know what you're doing, I love this, pray to the Father. He loves to help. He's the instructor. And we can learn to see every event in our lives 
every problem, every relationship, challenge, conflict as an opportunity to experience the reality, the competence, and the faithfulness of God. Let's say you have financial problems. Or is it a financial opportunity? An opportunity to develop self-control with your spending. Or an opportunity to develop generosity with your giving. Or let's say you're facing a conflicted relationship. Reframe it. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to get in touch with some things that are going on inside me, like maybe resentment or anger or my lack, my unwillingness to forgive. Maybe it's an opportunity to learn to have a difficult conversation. And how do we develop this posture, this way of experiencing the Holy Spirit in challenges and problems? Well, there's only one way. Practice. Practice. That's the third side that is so often missing. But it's the part that actually we have the most control over. So number three, commit to a training program to put on a new heart. I mean, aren't you glad that Jeff spends a lot of time in the simulator, in training, in practicing those takeoffs and landings? I'm kind of glad those bats came that one day. Because he, he discovered they actually can do this. They can actually do this. They've spent hours studying, learning, growing, uh, when we were talking, he, spent, he said he probably spends a third of his time in training or has over the course of his life. And if we want to master anything, we need to read and study and practice. You see, habits aren't developed in a crisis. Habits are developed in normal everyday life so that when the crisis happens, you actually see what your habits genuinely are. We need to spend time in the classroom. We don't learn math in school so we can do math at school. We learn math at school so we can do math in life. We don't work out in a gym so that we can look good in the gym. Well, I look pretty good in the, anyway. <clears throat> we develop health and strength in the gym so that we can have health and strength in life. They are directly connected. So what, this is my question. What is your spiritual fitness training plan? What is it? Jesus had one, and he was God. He had two kinds of spiritual exercises. His workout, practicing, simulators, if you will. He had withdrawal, disengagement practices, and he had engagement practices, like serving and washing. Jesus did all that. How are your disengagement practices going. Because Jesus had a big life when he wasn't in public. He spent time disengaged, going for walks with God. Spent 40 days out in the wilderness. He fasted. He spent a lot of time praying, disengaged in solitude. That's why we never have the sense that Jesus was rushing through life. What's your spiritual fitness training program? A pastor asked Dallas Willard, what is the key to healthy spiritual life? Without blinking, he said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Many well-meaning people aren't kind sometimes because they're just rushed. And rushing has worry, fear, and anger as close associates. And many times our hurry is driven by pride, self-importance, fear. And when we disengage, we get quiet before God for maybe 15, 20 minutes a day, half hour a day, or sometimes a half a day, 
or maybe even a full day at times, we're going to realize the world went on without me. How did that happen? God could manage to run the world without me. And let's just face it, sometimes our hurry is due to a lack of faith, not because we get that much done. And the best way to clear up muddy water if your life is unclear, one of the best ways is just stop and let it all settle out and clarity can come. And when we spend time in quiet, reflective prayer, we begin to pray for those around us. We begin to pray through our schedule for the day as we meet people. We begin to pray for difficult situations. God is going to speak to us. The Holy Spirit is going to speak to us in those moments so that our disengaged time, our practice, will shape our engaged time. That's what Jesus did. And when we learn to follow Jesus in what he did when he was disengaged, we will find ourselves able to act the way Jesus acted when he was engaged. And I've never met a person who faces the challenges of life with a sense of wisdom and peace and clarity and deep soul settledness who doesn't regularly practice some of these spiritual disciplines, these exercises. And we've given you a lot of these tools those daily readings for between now and Easter, those daily readings. So I'm just saying, this could be part of your new spiritual fitness program. It takes 30, 40 days to develop a habit. These daily readings, online. I think there's copies of it on your way out if you want to do that. We have some special services, some reflection questions in those passages. Many people I know are, do have some sort of fast going for the Lent season. But as you can see, it takes all three of these sides to find the easy way. Not just two, not just two. And team, would you put that triangle back up there? I want to give you a moment to just think about your own life. Where are you? Which of these angles are going pretty well for you? You have that sense of the Holy Spirit in your life. You, you bring the Holy Spirit into your day. Pray through the day. Pray before you go into an important appointment or an engagement. And the power of the Spirit is there. Don't let him feel him, but he's there. Sometimes you can. Or maybe you've said, well, I got my church life, but I'm not bringing it. No, those problems, all those problems we face. Jesus, come to me. Come to me. I know how to, I'll teach you how to fly right side up. And how about your spiritual fitness program, your training plan? Your practice. We have an opportunity between now and Easter to learn to follow Jesus in ways that we haven't. I was thinking about this the other day. I was, in fact, I was standing in the hall and I said to somebody, you know what? I don't think I've mastered this Christian life thing yet. I'm an apprentice, just like you. Most of us are like the rest of us. And Jesus said, all of you, come, come to me. So I'm going to give you a chance, just 45 seconds, don't rush, to just think about those three angles and ask God, what, which one do you want me to focus on for the next 30 days? Just take a note, take a pen, circle that. I'm going to be quiet, give you a moment of quiet.
Would you stand with me? And I'm gonna pray and then we'll be finished. So Jesus is standing before all of us with a smile on his face and a look of love in his eye. And he's saying, your life's heavy. You got a lot going on. Come to me. Just come. Just follow me. I'll lead you. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light for those who have learned. Want to learn? Do you? Do you want to learn? I'm just going to ask you to say, yeah, that's Dennis, that's what I want to do. I'm going to ask you to say, quiet of your heart or out loud, I will. I will follow Jesus on the count of three. One, two, three. If you need prayer, we have our prayer team members on the sides of the stage. I encourage you. You need some prayer for anything today? Come there. Uh, thanks for being here today. There's coffee, lemonade, Gatorade out in the atrium. Go and learn, go and follow. We'll see you next week.